bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's Potter's Field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here's our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean, and this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. One quick thing before we begin, we've been asked how can you pick up a signed copy of Heart Island uh, and also the Heart Island audiobook, and you may do so by simply logging on to our website, michaeltkeene.com, and go to the store. Well before Hart Island became New York City's potter's field, Hart Island, or Hart's Island, as it was then called, became a prime tourist destination for every rogue and scoundrel in town when New York City officials banned boxing. Overnight, the ban turned Hart Island into one of New York's premier pugilism venues. By the time of the Civil War, fighters regularly battled on this desolate stretch of land. But the Union spoiled the fun when they realized the island's usefulness as a prisoner of war camp for Confederate troops. But for a brief moment in time, Hart Island reigned supreme as the Mecca for bare-knuckle fighting. And to help us explore this strange piece of Heart Island history, as well as the phenomena of bare-knuckle fighting, is our very special guest, Elliot J. Gorn. He is a professor of American urban history at Loyola University, Chicago. He's the author of many books, including Dillinger's Wild Ride, The Year That Made America's Public Enemy Number One, and Mother Jones, the Most Dangerous Woman in America, which hopefully we'll hear a little bit more about. Uh, but he's also the author of The Manly Arts, Bare Knuckle Prize Fighting in America, which we will discuss here today. And Professor Gorn, thank you very much for uh, being a guest on Talking Heart Island. How are you? All right. Thanks. My, my pleasure, Mike. And please, please call me Elliot if you don't mind. I will. I will. Um, okay. The Manly Arts, Bare Knuckle Prize Fighting in America. How, how did you come to write the book? 
I was a desperate grad student looking for a dissertation topic. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> All great and, things began that way. <laughs> there are a few. Um, I don't know about all. But, but uh, and, and um, I, w- I was interested in things like uh, immigration and working class culture in New York City and uh, kept getting references to um, boxing, pri- uh, bare knuckle prize fighting and other rough sports. There was, there was an era of really rough sports, uh, dog fighting and, and, and uh, rat, rat baiting and these horrible sports. So, so I, got, I got very interested in it that way. I thought this was to the extent that I could find stories about these events. It was a way into thinking about these thinking about the people who lived, especially in lower Manhattan, which is which was the Mecca, the center of all of this. Are you originally from New York? Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Couldn't couldn't be further. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had family in New York though. Uh, there's a certain way in which I always, even though I had never been there till I was 18, 19, I always thought of New York as some kind of homeland. Uh, uh, but no, I'm from, from Los Angeles and, and, uh, never lived there again after, after leaving for college. What, what was it about the history of New York city that, that drew you? Well, New York city, especially, you know, I was especially interested back then in the 19th century and New York City is, you know, the greatest uh, city in America. And, and and so much that, you know, happens in America happens first in New York, whatever. Uh, it was just such a center of, of in American history, of of intellectual history, of social history. I, I was particularly interested in, like I say, immigration, Irish immigration, English immigration in that era. Um, and, and New York just really uh, seemed like just so dynamic it, it was such a it grew so quickly and it was just such a shock city as they say the uh the whole phenomena of bare knuckle prize fighting was that during this time period it was the irish who primarily participated in this sport were, were there other ethnic groups as well well you know english immigrants and there were there were a lot of immigrants from england they also it was it was their sport too uh the rules of of Bare knuckle prize fighting comes to us from England. They're in the mid 18th century, so it's called Brockton's Rules. It's a very different sport than what we become used to under the Queensberry Rules with gloves. In the old sport, um, a round ends when a fighter is either punched down or thrown down. There's wrestling involved. There's no there's no regular time for rounds. None of this three minute stuff. A round can end after 15 seconds, or it can end after 30 minutes. Um, Fights could la- lasted until one fighter either could no longer continue or refused to continue. So they would last anywhere from a few minutes to three or four hours. Um, uh, and it was all completely illegal. It was illegal in New York because they had banned the uh, banned boxing in New York City. Uh, did your research take you to Hard Island at all and, and the boxing that took place there? No, I, I didn't make it to Hart Island itself. Um, uh, I, I, but I focused on one particular fight there. It was it was an, one of the things because it's illegal because the sport is completely illegal. Um, th- there was this pattern of people, often thousands. In the case of the fight I'm going to tell you about, by between William Bell and a man named Yankee Sullivan, who was a, who was um, a convict who had. <laughs> Who had fled England? Uh, they, they said, rather, they sent him to Botany Bay in Australia as a convict. He escaped, came back to England, fought a fight or two, and then went to America. 
he was Irish. He was from Bandon in County Cork. Um, well, he becomes a great champion in many ways, the first great champion at the very beginning of his career in August, 1842, he fights a man named William Bell, who's an English immigrant who taught the art of self-defense to people to, uh, as he said, the good people of Brooklyn, afraid of foreign, uh, the wily, the wily influence of foreigners, meaning Irish. So a lot of this is Irish and English rivalries getting replayed in the ring. Irish versus Native American, Native American versus English. Um, and this all develops, oh, it, it, it's their fights before, say, 1840, but it's really in the 1840s that things start getting going when there's massive immigration, especially from Ireland, um, and, and, and the fight game starts going. So, so there's this great fight on Hart Island, uh, August 29, 1842, between Sullivan and uh, this Englishman who teaches self-defense, uh, um, Bell. And um, you, ha you have to imagine the scene. Again, it's illegal, so you can't just stage the fight down in lower Manhattan where the bars are. Men at the docks get on boats. Ten steamers head to Hart Island from New York City. The estimates are 6,000 people are on board. They take the steamers to uh, to Hart Island, Hart's Island back then, as you say, um, and and disembark, set up a ring in the middle of this pretty empty island, a proper ring, 24-foot rope ring with a scratch mark in the middle where the two men will tow the mark uh, and fight, and fight with, an, with referees and umpires and 6,000 people around the ring uh, to see this fight. And then when it's over, get back on the boats and go back to New York. Um, and and this was this was how bare knuckle fights took place, for the most part, until finally the Queensberry rules take over and boxing becomes legal and legitimate. But for 50 years, boxing matches were like this, illegal, held in out of the way places, and that's why Hearts Island was so important. It was reasonably close to New York City. The jurisdiction was. If, if it wasn't in dispute, no one was going to uh, – the, 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 the constabulary were not going to go up there and stop 6,000 people from carrying on a fight. And so this great fight uh, uh, between the between these two men, Sullivan won. Uh, he was just much more the seasoned ring kind of fighter and a, kind of a, a bit of a trickster, um, convinced at one point in the sixth round, convinced Bell that he was ready to give in. Let me go. I'll give in, Belly. And as soon as Bell lets him go, he punches him in the ear, um, and 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 fi finally wins. Uh, it's it's about the last thirty-eight minutes. Uh, I think it's twenty-four twenty-four rounds. Um, but it's a sensation. It's a sensational event, uh, um, and of course condemned uh, in in most of in most of the press. Um, uh, it's 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 uh, these are these are these. Uh, well, let me say, the, the, there's a, one newspaper, the New York Morning Express, right, talks about the numbers of loafers and rowdies uh, who board the trains, for you know, the boats for Hearts Island. The, the headline for the story was demoralization in New York. Um, ruthless vagabonds, the paper calls them. I understand the crime rate was alleged to have gone down by half that day. <laughs> so they said, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but of course, you know, that this is the whole kind of 
these were working class men and there were there were some criminals there were people like gambling there was swearing there was drinking at ringside and and, and it was all sort of against the whole notion you know of 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 america as a shining city on a hill um this was pretty rough stuff you know i was um i think i ran into uh, a piece that said there was a very special observer there that day when james yankee sullivan fought englishman billy bell and that was bill the butcher pool um can you tell us a little bit about bill the butcher pool I, I can, um, uh, although don't believe everything that was in the movie, um, uh, the, the Martin Scorsese movie, but he was a kind of, um, uh, especially a few years later, he was a, a renowned figure in uh, lower Manhattan. He was a butcher by trade. Uh, uh, butchers were uh, the, the butchers were very, very important tradesmen in this era. Uh, individual shopkeepers and some with whole having apprentices and they were they were they were you know tough men um butcher butcher bill was native born american and made himself and and others made him the representative of of the native born against the immigrants especially the irish and this is mostly later in the century um when uh, uh i'm sorry later in the decade as the as nativism as more and more irish came because of the famine in ireland funny how it echoes today in certain ways that you know the irish are coming because they're starving to death um getting out getting out of the island uh they're they're, they're refugees um and they're coming in increasing numbers and there's a wave of nativism uh against them uh and some of this gets played out in symbolic ways and the prize ring again, you know, Irish against native born and, and butcher bill pull a, st- a butcher and kind of a street tough um, is, is uh, an important uh, figurehead for the native, for native Americans, for what becomes eventually the no, no, nothing party. He's eventually assassinated in one of the bars in lower Manhattan and it's thought that one of the masterminds behind this, it's unclear if this is true, was the then reigning champion, John Morrissey, himself Irish or Irish American, really. Uh, he was born near Troy, New York. Um, so, again, this rivalry, this intense rivalry uh, uh, based on ethnic, you know, on, on ethnic hatreds of the of the era. Uh, between the two combatants there that day, uh... Yankee Sullivan and uh, Billy Bell. Do you know what happened to them eventually in, later in life? You know, I don't know what happened to Bell. I do know what happened to Sullivan. Um, Sullivan is kind of an interesting story. Sullivan, as I say, had you know had a, a background as a you know a convict in Australia. He um, becomes very prominent. First, he has his own bar in Lower Manhattan, um, and he becomes very po- prominent in politics as an enforcer. This was something that was pretty common in those days. Um, guys who could intimidate people to stay away from the polls, to come to the polls to vote. Uh, muscle was really a, a part of a very big part of politics, especially in New York City. Um, and he he was very very important uh, uh, in democratic politics in in that era. Now, eventually, he goes west during the gold rush, as so many men from Lower Manhattan, again Irish, native-born American, English, do. Uh, get on boats and head to California during the gold rush. He became very, very 
prominent in politics there again not as a not as a mayor or a city councilman but as an enforcer uh and but eventually got um got on the wrong side of uh the, the vigilantes the california vigilantes determined to as they would say clean up politics ended up in prison uh and i can't remember the exact year 1853 54 uh died mysteriously in prison uh, uh, bled to death, and it's unclear how or why what happened. It was said to be a suicide by the vigilantes. No one, not many people, really believe that. So, so that that's how that's how Yankee Sullivan met met his end. It was a violent life and a violent end. Fascinating, and to think that Hart Island, which is uh, the largest mass graveyard in America, and which is what we're all about on our podcast, that there was this episode. Is just phenomenal. Um, you know, I can't let you go until you talk to us a little bit about your book, Mother Jones, The Most Dangerous Woman in America. Now, I have to, I confess, I don't even know who Mother Jones is, but can you tell us what the book is about? And I'm on a crusade to make sure people know. Uh, <laughs> literally, you know, there's Mother Jones magazine, a sort of lefty progressive magazine that's been out there for a while. And even they don't know who she was. Um, <laughs> I just got back last week from um, Cork, Ireland, where every year there is a Spirit of Mother Jones festival. And and mostly it is uh, causes like uh, environmentalism, uh, labor unions. Mother Jones was a was a, a famine immigrant with her family. Uh, came over about eighteen, little after eighteen fifty. Grew up in Toronto. Mar- uh, moved to Memphis, Tennessee. Married, had four children. Lost her whole family in a yellow fever epidemic. Came back to she had been a little spent a little time in Chicago. Came back to Chicago. Became a seamstress. Was wiped out in the Chicago fire in eighteen seventy one. And then she sort of reappears in, eight, in the very late 19th century. It's no longer Mary Harris as she was born, no longer Mary Jones, her maiden name. She's Mother Jones. She reinvents herself as a labor organizer, uh, a hellraiser, as she would say. This re- she was very famous between, say, 1900 and 1920. Led a children's crusade against child labor worked for the United Mine Workers, organizing coal miners, which just go into the mines and, and organize. Um, she really, Hellraiser is exactly the right word. She would say, I'm not a humanitarian, I'm a Hellraiser. She was the most dangerous woman in America because a uh, prosecuting attorney, she had violated an injunction, and in West Virginia, a prosecuting attorney pointed to her in court and said, there, Your Honor, sits the most dangerous woman in America. <laughs> she crooks her little finger and 10,000 contented men walk off the job. And, of course, they weren't contented men. They were coal miners who were terribly exploited workers in, in that in that era. Um, she, she was she was really something she you know, she would say things like I asked a man in prison once how he got there. He said he stole a pair of shoes. I told him you should have stolen a railroad and you'd be a United States senator. <laughs> uh, Probably some that, truth in that, isn't there? <laughs> I, don't, I, I didn't say there wasn't. <laughs> she had that great Irish wit uh, and she 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 carried it. She was very charismatic. She was friends with people like uh, Carl Sandburg and 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 uh, um, uh, uh, Clarence Darrow. She, she had audiences with presidents who all called her mother. Um, it was it was she you know uh, she once said um, 
talking about the rights of women. She said, uh, God Almighty made the women and the Rockefeller gang of thieves made the ladies. Don't be ladylike, she said. Get out in the streets. <laughs> <laughs> was, was she from, where was she from originally? County Cork, uh, oh. Cork City. Okay, Cork but, City. but then when she came here, she lived in she Chicago? Uh, first, first Toronto. She okay. was most of the rest of her life. She was raised in, or less of her childhood, and well, heard of it, adolescence in Toronto, then Chicago briefly, Memphis, then the rest, of, most of her time in Chicago. I see. And when she wasn't, well, I should say, Chicago is her home, and she had a home at all. She would say she was asked before Congress once for her address, and she said, "My address is like my shoes; they travel with me wherever I go." <laughs> You said, I bet you have a lot of these stories, don't you? <laughs> Sounds like a very interesting <laughs> she, person. She was she was really interesting, really in, an exceptional person. In, in the couple of minutes we have left, how, how about touching upon your book about John Dillinger? Um, anything in there that maybe we're not that familiar with that we should know? Well, you know, I, I think um, I, I don't think there's any, you know, big reveal. You know, there's the new stuff out there that they want to have some members of his family want to have his right, body done. Right. Maybe it's not really John. The, those rumors started instantly after he was killed. Instantly. The, the, the next day, it's not really him. It's someone else. The eye color was wrong. And that's almost certainly not true. Um, you know, that that, that, uh, that it, 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 it was... I'm saying I, I'll go on. It's almost certainly not true that that there was a, a uh, some patsy who was put up and took the bullet instead of Dillinger. There's just no reason to believe that that's that that's right. But the story really is all about the Great Depression. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. here's a man who for a year is robbing banks and making his escape and escaping the police and the feds. And normally that story might not get such traction, but it's in the worst years of the Great Depression. 25% unemployment, people are desperate. And as one woman writes writes into her congressman, uh, so he robs banks, what of it? You know, right. he, he does become a hero. And people are not foolish. They know he's not robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. They know he's robbing from the rich and keeping for himself. <laughs> They're fine with that. <laughs> um, there was... So, so the Great Depression really is part of the part of the story. He's a he's this strangely charismatic figure, this thirty year old man from Indiana who, you know, robs banks and 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 becomes, you know, a kind of uh, well, heroes to not exactly the right word, but famous certainly and 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 admired by many. Strangely, kind of, too. kind of like Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, they have that same aura about them, don't they? Yes, you're, you're Mike. You're absolutely right. It is it is uh, uh, that same era. This more in the urban north, Bonnie and Clyde more in the uh, uh, Texas, Oklahoma, and so on. Uh, you know, area. But yeah, yeah. Um, not so much gangsters like Capone as outlaws. You think of that word outlaws? You know, like the old, like in the old west. Right. The uh, for um, our listeners who want to keep track of what you're working on next or what you have worked on, what what is a good way for them to uh, check in on you? Do you have your own website or someplace they can go? I'm not very good at that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, you know, the things I've published are available on Amazon mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, uh, I guess I do have a web page at, at, at Loyola. Um, so uh, our, our Loyola University, loyola.edu, 
is where we're at. Great university, by the way. Go Ramblers. See if we can get back in the NCAAs again. (laughs) Well, uh, again, uh, the book that we're primarily talking about was The Manly Arts, Bare Knuckle Prize Fighting in America. And as a special treat, as we say goodbye uh, to uh, Elliot, uh, we're going to play about a minute and a half segment uh, that comes from the Heart Island audiobook that's narrated by Norma Jean uh, Gratsky, our co-host, where she describes almost literally punch by punch the fight between James Yankee Sullivan and Englishman Billy Bell. And, uh, and Elliot, uh, thank you very much. Uh, this has been fascinating. I enjoyed it. And uh, thank you for being a guest on Talking Heart Island. My pleasure, Mike. I enjoyed it very much, too. Thank you. Thank you. Sullivan made the first move. He advanced in the bright sun and opened the bout with a terrific jab to Bell's face, catching him just below the left eye. Bell countered with a fast, quick blow to Sullivan's cheekbone. Sullivan responded by rushing Bell and throwing him to the ground, pouncing on him in the dirt as cries and hurrahs from the vast crowd filled the air. Some stood and started pushing drunkenly through clumps of others in order to see over the person in front of them. By the end of the first round, Sully's fans claimed first blood. And so it continued. Round 19. Billy let off but was stopped and caught a return upon his gory nose. Smart exchanges close and struggle at the ropes. Sully ending it by tossing him beautifully over. The crowd sat vicariously exhausted by the ordeal that never seemed to end. The bell rang and the two squared off, visibly fatigued, but still acted as professional showmen with an audience of thousands gathered there on Hart Island. Round twenty, Sully came up smiling and apparently fresh, while Bell was dreadfully punished, wavering and unsteady. They fought on in the simmering heat of the clearing, to both jeers and unflagging support. To their fans, they were living icons of the warrior ethic of the five points. By the twenty-first round, Bell was groggy and barely able to see, but still remained standing. Sullivan threw him to the ground and savagely beat him. Round twenty-two found Sullivan landing a devastating punch square in Bell's battered face, plunging him headlong into the dirt. Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website, located at www.michaeltkeen.com, and enter your email address. If you have any questions, about the podcast itself, or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean. And we're Talking Heart Island. (music) 